back, listeners, to Millennial Mental Health Podcast. I'm Stephanie Contra O'Hara, licensed professional counselor, and today I have with me Jessica. Jessica, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hi, it's great to be here. My name is Jessica Gunther. I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I work as a psychotherapist in the northern end of the Denver metro area. Um, in private practice, I work with adults and adolescents. Um, through mostly a psychodynamic lens, and we'll have some time to talk about what that means in a little while, I think. Um, And my areas of focus are eating disorders, complex slash developmental trauma, um, addictions, anxieties, mood disorders um, are my, my main areas of focus. Um, been doing this private practice since 2013 and been rolling around in the field my entire adult life, which since I'm a little above a millennial, you don't get to know how long. <laughs> <laughs> well, this podcast is for everyone. It's just called Millennial Mental Health since me, the, the host, is a millennial. Um, so no worries. I've had people from all different um, age ranges on here, so... Thank you for taking time to be here today. So I'm going to start off asking you actually about psychodynamic therapy. And if you could take a minute to explain what that means to listeners and what the approach and what the approach looks like and the benefits of uh, using that in therapy. Absolutely. Um, You know, I'm glad you asked that. I, I even myself remember going into graduate school and having my some of the old kind of stereotypes. Um, psychodynamic therapy is um, like psychoanalysis, which it is, um, but that means it's like Sigmund Freud sitting on on the couch, or you sitting on the couch, and he's hanging out smoking a cigar. Um, and clearly, we've evolved for a long way from that. Um, so, psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is what I practice primarily. Really, um, it does have some of those same tenets. The biggest idea is the the more we can know ourselves, the greater relationship we'll have with ourselves and with the rest of the world. Um, so it, it's a more of an explorative or depth-oriented therapy um, where, of course, like any type of therapy you would go into, we hope for symptom relief or symptom alleviation. Um, Similarly, like most of us, when we think about going to therapy, there's a growth focus. This type of therapy has a strong growth focus. Um, so we're not you know, doing techniques, if you will, um, to send you home to work on to reduce your anxiety. We will be, but just not so directly. I'll be saying, you know, Stephanie, tonight I want you to go home and practice this. It's not traditionally something we would do. Um, Really, we are looking at, there's a lot of us that is unknown. We all have pieces of ourselves that are unknown to ourselves and at different levels for each of us. So one of the ways we work or think about things is that these things outside of our awareness, our thoughts or feelings that are just buried down there, actually govern us more than the things inside of our, that are in our awareness. And as humans, we often feel like we're our heads, right? I don't know. You know, a lot of times when we think about ourselves, we feel like our head. Um, but we're this entire body and there's so much going on that we don't even have awareness. So with psychodynamic therapy, together, the therapist and the patient are working to, to discover these things. Um, and for the most part, most of us have difficulty accessing this 
without the help of someone else, like a dynamic therapist. So we're doing that. Um, we pay attention a lot to looking at patterns and themes happening in someone's life, both in the present, and that does help us see how the past has influenced the present. A lot of times we're looking at patterns, of course, we're interested, you know, there are some of those old stereotypes that are true, like interested in how childhood impacts the adulthood, how we deal with that, even within the dynamic family, if you will, there's different branches, is different. Mo all of us, to a certain extent, to a high degree, utilize the therapeutic relationship as well. Similar, you know, a lot of what I'm saying, listeners might be going, what's different about this? Because this is really what most therapists, I think, would say. Um, but we are really attuning to the relationship and we're encouraging our patients to utilize it, to share thoughts and feelings that they have about me, and we work through them. Um, obviously, that gives us insight into other relationships. There's also the benefit of being able to work through relationally things that might still or have never felt safe to do with someone else. For example, being angry with someone. So many of us have a tough time being angry and often not been allowed to express anger at other people. So in here, we invite the anger. I can tolerate it. Um, in fact, I welcome it because rare is it that we can experience anger in an interpersonal situation without doing something to stop the anger of some sort. So, and of course I could go on and on because it's a passion of mine, but I think that's kind of the nutshell. It sounds like it's a therapy or therapeutic approach that's very vulnerable and not just for the client, but also for the therapist. If you're kind of opening them, opening it up to the client to giving you feedback about what they are seeing from you and how you're showing up in the session. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I had a friend, a, a colleague who's a therapist and said, Ther this work, meaning all of us therapists, is not for the faint of heart because we are always in the room where if you're doing individual therapy, two people in the room for one person, but right, we're absolutely attuned to ourselves. And since in this type of therapy, we're not usually using a manualized approach, you know, oh, I have this, I treat it with this. I have to utilize myself. And so it can be very vulnerable. Um, obviously, we do a lot of things dynamic practitioners have themselves gone through psychodynamic therapy or are at the same time. Um, and that's a big part of it. We like, again, many other therapists, we get ongoing consultation. I, I myself, and I don't know really any dynamic practitioners that don't seek ongoing consistent consultation because it is so vulnerable. Um, but it's so rich and so fulfilling. And, and that's for both parties, for both parties. Awesome. So in your practice, you work with adults and adolescents, as you mentioned. What do you see as the difference, differences and similarities between the different generations, maybe Gen X, Gen Zs, um, millennials? Um, when I was thinking about this question, Stephanie, I almost had to giggle because I thought I better make sure I know which generations. And I thought, hey, wait, where's the boomers? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can, we can talk about them as well. I honestly, in my practice, I think because we um, kind of target young adults and adults in more of a mindfulness-based approach, um, I don't know. We see very limited amount of like baby boomer generation, but you might have a, a different experience. So I'd be, love to hear about that as well. 
Yes. Um, I would, you know, with the, the joke aside, I would say I do see a decent amount. Um, I, I also would say the majority of the folks I see come from the Gen X, Millennial, and Gen Z. Um, but yes, I do get the, the baby boomer generation. And I was thinking in my head, I'm like, I don't, I definitely don't have anyone beyond above that. Um, and I, I also was thinking about this question of a fair amount because I thought similarities and differences. And I almost wanted to do the thing where the similarities I want aren't more profound, but you know, we are human, we are human, we are human. And so psychological pain, it manifests differently. And it does manifest, I think, differently through different generations in some ways, because we're also heavily influenced by our environment. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. Um, but also, you know, in, in analytic or dynamic work, we really think about the internal organization of beings. And equally fascinating is that can also kind of st stand the test of time, you know, 2021, what might contribute to a depressive position, the environment might look different, but we might have the same depressive kind of position that we would have had 100 years ago. Um, so that is fascinating. What I think I would find, um, there are sometimes different symptom manifestations. For example, I'm thinking, um, I want to say millennials in particular, so you can correct me, Stephanie. Um, we had a, a slight uptick in, um, I, I think some of what I noticed difference is people's thoughts about therapy and how people present and what they present seeking therapy and or their willingness. You know, um, the millennials and these Gen Zers, um, the amount of adolescents that I see who have asked their parents to go to therapy is pretty high. And I'm, I'm seeing you shake your head. So I'm thinking you probably do too. Um, generations before this, you and you would have almost had to, there had to be something really wrong. And even without just teenagers, in general, you don't need therapy. You only go to therapy if you're not well. And, mm -hmm. you know, many of, I, I would say so many of us in our practice find people want to have growth or they, you know, I met someone new recently, um, a patient, and they said just thought they should need to have someone to talk to. Their parents did. Obviously, it's much deeper than that, but mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't you. You are an incredible pain and suffering. Therefore, you need to go. I think that has been a shift over the period of my career that I've seen um, as one of the bigger ones. Are there some other questions or your end, too? Yeah, I wanted to, to say a little bit here. So I actually did a presentation yesterday to kids between the ages of nine and 14. And most of them honestly were closer to like the nine to 11 range. And it was so interesting. I said to them, like, I'm a therapist, you know, I see clients in my office. What, what do you guys think that means? And they all knew what a therapist was. And I was like, what? Like when I was like nine, 10, 11, the idea of going to a therapist or even knowing what a therapist was, was like so outside of my wheelhouse of like knowledge. And they even knew different types of therapy, which I thought was really interesting. They were using words like neurofeedback. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second, what? You guys know what the word neurofeedback is? Like, I'm a little like stunned right now. And it's interesting too, some of the 
people that I would consider closer to boomer, if not like in between like boomer and the, the Gen Z that we do get in my office come and they're like, yeah, my daughter went to therapy and I thought she had such a great experience that I now should come like myself. And I think that's really interesting to kind of see like younger generations, one being more accepting and more aware of therapy, but also encouraging like their parents or grandparents or you know, what have you to, to come to therapy because they've had such a great profound experience um, growing in therapy. Yes, I absolutely. Those are, that's such a good point. And um, I'm reminded as I can see you, the listeners can't. And how, when you said that about neurofeedback, I was also <laughs> almost gobsmacked. It's incredible. <laughs> it's in frankly a beautiful way. Um, mm-hmm. to, and you're, Right. I, you made me think too. Yes. And, or vice versa, how many of my parents of adolescents will say, Hey, do you have some names for me? Um, which mm-hmm. is just wonderful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think kind of going to your point, like people who went to go see therapists before perhaps, um, had real significant issues or the type of therapy that they received was really different. My grandmother, she's in her eighties and she saw the same therapist for 25 years. I don't really think that's a thing that happens anymore. I don't know how many therapists are working with one client continuously for 25 years. So I think even the way therapy is thought about in practice is, is very different. Um, compared to like boomers or beyond that. Right, right. And, you know, and of course, it depends on, I, I do tend to keep folks longer as dynamic folks do. Um, and I, I certainly have colleagues that have folks that have been on board for that long, but you're right. I think we have much more abbreviated treatment episodes. Um, we're a much more mobile society, how many people, period, are in the same career, well, or same job for 25 years. It's it's a rarity. Yeah. Um, and furthermore, that's, that can be, if, if you said, you know, that therapy might take you 20 years, we might all say, what? But you know, <laughs> the good news about being the patient of, in therapy is that you're always kind of, it's for you and about you. Um, mm-hmm. And you and your therapist will work together to find out how long. But yes, absolutely. Yes, I think, I mean, I've been in therapy on and off for probably a decade, but I guess seeing a therapist for that extended period of time, I think at least from people that I know is not as like common. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, I was meeting with someone for coffee. I think it was right before the pandemic hit um, and a colleague and it's short story long. We were both, they were launching into private practice. And I said, you know, I tend to keep people for a long period of time in my practice, generally minimum a year as a treatment length. And their eyes kind of got big. And I remembered there's so many of us that, that don't. And yes, um, generally speaking, um, I don't keep folks that long either, but um, I think most of us have caseloads that are going rotating. I don't want to say it's not like a revolving door, but we have people and people need different things at different points to your point too. Sometimes it's like, I'll do therapy for a while. And now I, I'm, 
I'm on a break and I want to go. And sometimes we try different kinds of therapy. Um, and that's not uncommon either in our culture. And I think, again, beautiful because what you might need when you're 25 probably than what you need at 35. Yes, exactly. And even the issues that I imagine you're facing have like evolved. So, I mean, as a therapist, I feel like sometimes I've like, I don't want to say outgrown therapy therapist, but I do think that's to some extent true, right? Like a therapist who primarily practices just like CBT or maybe just like DBT, like after a certain point, you're like, you know what, I need more. I need, you know, maybe psychodynamic. I need to do internal family systems. I need EMDR now. And so to find a therapist that can like meet those needs, I think is really helpful and can encourage people to advocate for themselves to get what they need from um, therapy. So the next question I have here is actually about the population that you work with, which you mentioned is eating disorders and anxiety, um, other clients as well that have other issues. And I had another therapist on here who's also local to Denver, Lori Johnson. And she met, talked a lot about the crossover between like OCD and anxiety and addiction. So I'm curious, like, what do you see as the overlap in your practice that kind of comes up most or that you need feel like need to be treated like simultaneously in order for a person to really heal and grow? Yes. Um, there, there is a high overlap of eating disorders and OCD and eating disorders and substance use issues. Of course, we could then go into other addictions, process addictions, and um, boy, we could be down the races, but there's a high <laughs> correlation. And frankly, frankly, introduce me to a patient that has an eating disorder or an addiction um, that doesn't say they have anxiety. Um, and, and I'd be, I'd be very interested to meet that person. It's, it's a very, very, very rare occurrence. As a matter of fact, um, anxiety until maybe someone intervenes with us, um, if, if our symptoms become that loud is often a drive more of a driving force in treatments. When I worked at um, higher levels of care, when I worked at an inpatient unit, people would often want alleviation of the anxiety, you know, and we even can get this fantasy of, well, what if I could, if I could just get my anxiety under control, I want to care about this other stuff. Um, because anxiety feels so foreign to us. One similarity with eating disorders and OCD and addictions is, um, I'm going to use a real heady word here and is that it's it's kind of a fun one if you like to geek out like I do and learn little psychobabbly words. There's this term called egocentonic, if folks have heard, which means it feels like part of us. Dystonic feels like kind of foreign to us. So dystonic feels not me, like anxiety. Ah, get it off. Eating disorders, um, for example, are often called very dystonic. They feel not like something happening or a symptom. They, they are us. So sometimes treating an eating disorder is... In, in a way like, hey, let me lob off your arm and pretend nothing happened because that's what I'm, you're asking me to do here if you're asking me to get well. So um, those those things, I think, are very common in the egocentonic nature versus the egodystonic. So the anxiety is one of the biggest symptom manifestations. And, and I think similarly, whatever you're treating, I, I find, and maybe it is my anecdotal with who I, who I get to see more often, 
anxiety is often something people want alleviation from. Um, you know, and if you treat addictions, people talk about addiction swapping, um, you know, with the, the process addictions or other things. And if you work in eating disorders a lot, you're inevitably going to hear someone call it a whack-a-mole disorder because we'll get down mm -hmm. the, one of the symptoms and then up pops another one. Because, you know, in, when I trained, um, my initial training, my undergrad is in addiction counseling. I trained in an area where that's an actual four-year degree and social work. And when I was working in addictions very early on, this always stood with me, which is the substance use slash behavior, whatever it, you know, ritual or whatever is a symptom of the problem. It's not the problem, which is how I think I really found my modality because it is, you know, and I think, again, we tend to agree with this, that there's the roots underneath that are, and often most of us will see there's a, especially in 2021, we are all pretty well versed in this idea of what is called trauma-informed care, which is to say that everything is influenced by trauma. Mm -hmm. And we have a broader sense and understanding of what trauma is now. But similarly, if you give me someone in any of these diagnostic categories, if you must, um, not a huge, diagnoses are important and not, right? Mm -hmm. um, but tell me someone that you could go and, oh, no trauma there. Um, <laughs> I, I laugh because it, I almost feel like, how do you get out of life and childhood without some sort of like trauma, whether it's a large trauma, like a, a death of a loved one or physical or sexual abuse or a smaller trauma, like, um, you know, feeling like you've failed or feeling like you lost a, a friend or something like that because of, you know, one thing or another. So I, I think it's almost impossible to go throughout life without experiencing some sort of trauma. I wholeheartedly concur. No one writes for free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so they're all influenced by that, of course, and you know, and they all often travel together. Um, I want to say uh, that there's about five percent greater than the average population of substance use with eating disorder populations, et cetera, et cetera, um, and the carryovers. Other thoughts, and that's because I think you work in this realm a little bit too. If you know, other questions or thoughts you had? Yeah, I oftentimes work with adolescents with eating disorders. Um, I have worked with addictions, but I tend to stay away from that currently. Um, obviously it shows up in the room. You know, you have people that are like, oh yeah, I only experience like anxiety or only experience depression. And then you find out that they're drinking excessively or using other substances to um, cope with their mental health issues. I definitely think that it's interesting how certain illnesses or mental health concerns arrive or, or come. Because again, I work with young people who have eating disorders. So they're usually at like the very beginning stages of their um, disorder. So it's different than if someone had an eating disorder for like 20 years and they're coming to see me. I don't really see a lot of clients like that currently. Um, but I've even seen eating disorders develop out of, so I have this client who developed an eating disorder due to a lot of factors, but primarily like feeling like her disability made her so different that she needed to try to control some aspect of her life. And 
I think eating disorders and anxiety have a lot to do with this like uncertainty of, of control and uncertain and pre- unpredictability of what's going to happen and how they're going to be successful. And it's just this matter of attempting to create some sort of part of their identity that is like almost predictable or controlled. Yes. Yes. Um, where there's often a lack of full sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of like gets integrated with their identity, kind of going back to what you said. And I I think I like to work with people and have their eating disorder be labeled as something else. Like, you know, there's this popular treatment idea of calling it ED or giving it like a a separate name um, to try to bring back a person's sense of self and identity without having the eating disorder be part of how they see themselves or part of who they are. Yes. Absolutely. So that, you know, and, and there, are, there are many ways to go about this, but absolutely you are, you know, I don't think many of us would ever call someone their disorder, right? We, we all know that, you know, and, um, but because of this ego dystonic kind of components or syntonic components, being able to, to tease that out. And, you know, I'm talking to Stephanie right now, you know, I, I'm not talking to bulimia right now. That's just absurd. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. We think about that with anything else. Um, so why wouldn't we think about, you know, and, and, and furthermore, symptoms, symptoms work until they don't work, right? They came about for a reason. They didn't come about, you know, so often when we, these particular disorders, and truthfully, especially substance use, we tend to um, almost criminalize or pathologize when they've come about for very good reasons in an attempt to protect someone from some really, really, as you said, uncertainty, incredible traumas, the unknown. Um, and they've come for good reasons. So, which is why sometimes they often say, you know, anxiety dies hard, right? Um, and it dies hard for a good reason because it's not, it, yes, none of us really like anxiety, but it's shown up to protect us. And it's doing a darn good job in some ways. Yes, yes. I, I uh, oftentimes think that, you know, eating disorders are a way for people to kind of like show up um, in their lives in a way that feels safe to them um, because the eating disorder is like protecting them in, in some sort of way um, or giving them what they need. And even though it's not necessarily healthy, a way of getting what they need, but it's like serving them in some sort of way. Otherwise they would do something different. It's benefiting them. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to, to be very clear for anyone that, you know, you meet anyone that these, these symptoms come on, they're benefiting us, but I want to be clear. And I know, you know, this, that no one orders these symptoms up. It's funny when you start talking about eating disorders, all the things like order up, metabolize all these words that we use in our, I have too much on my plate in our regular day-to-day speak that bring in, but no one would order up um, an eating disorder or an anxiety disorder. And people that say that it's, it's just, you know, sometimes one of the things that will often happen when you tell someone you're an eating disorder specialist is I wish I had an eating disorder or could you help me not eat? You know, like I have, it's, to this day, and I sometimes still fall on my chair, but I'm like, well, we're there. No, no one was like, you know, I think I'd like to, you know, no. Um, so, yes, when we say they're benefiting people, I just, I feel it's important to be clear that 
they're benefiting us, but no one chooses it. No one, and no one would order it up for anyone. Yeah. And I think oftentimes eating disorders start up in ways that are very sneaky and people are allowed to live in this sort of semi-denial for an extended period of time. Um, because I, I think, again, like you said, no one is like choosing to feel that way about themselves or about their bodies or about the choices that they're making around food. And that's a whole, I think, could be like an hour long podcast yeah. <laughs> talking about the misconceptions around um, eating disorders and, and how they develop and what other people think about treatment, right? I've even heard parents like, why can't you just make them eat? I'm like, that's not how it works. I can't just like, you can't force someone to just eat. Yes. But again, a whole other long podcast just about that one topic. Yes. Um, so I wanted to thank you for taking your time to be on today. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell people how they can reach you. Um, either social media or your website and yeah, just kind of like share where people can get in contact with you. Absolutely. I, I think the easiest way would just to give you my website um, because that will give you my phone number um, as well as my email. And it's a pretty simple one. It's my first name, last name. Um, it's, it's Jessica Gunther, LCSW.com. The trick in there is my Gunther is spelled with an E after the U. So it's Jessica G-U-E-N-T-H-E-R, L-C-S-W.com. And I'm sure if they ever really need, they can find you, find me via you. Yes, and your information will also be in the show notes for anyone um, that wants to just grab it right off of that. But I wanted to thank you again, and thank you listeners for tuning in today. And I will see you all next week. Thanks so much, Stephanie. It was an honor to be here. 